0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Uh, If you send me questions otherwise, I'm probably am not going to get them in my queue. Email them, put them in the comment section, I'll get them in there. And uh, we've been tearing that queue down and tearing it apart over the last few weeks And it's actually getting back down to a manageable size now, which I'm very happy about. So we'll see about doing maybe one or two more uh, live bonus episodes uh, in the coming weeks as time permits. Uh, But we're definitely going to continue on with the regular weekly episode here as long as you guys have questions for me. So keep sending them to me and I will keep putting them in my queue. I wanted to uh, put a quick note out. I really only do this around Christmas time, and it's really kind of silly of me. I've got merchandise. If you guys are interested in Christmas presents centered around Scientology critical thinking type stuff, there is a link to my Spreadshirt store down uh, in the links below here, uh, Critical Merchandise. And you all can check that out and uh, maybe use it to gift other people in your life with some critical thinking and some, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, check those out. You can put those logos and symbols and various things on shirts, hats, mugs, towels, whatever. Spreadshirt has some pretty interesting options down there. And it's been there this whole time. It's always there for you guys if you are interested in that kind of thing. Uh, it, it does help supplement my, you know, the little tiny bit of, uh, of, of income comes my way from that. So it's also good for supporting the channel. And speaking of, tis the season and all that, so I wanted to say, if you are enjoying my content and think this channel is worth something, go ahead and uh, join me on Patreon or send me some love, buy me a cup of coffee, whatever. All right, let's get on with your questions. I did, oh, excuse me, I did want to say that I really hope you guys will check out the um, Critical Conversation show that we did um, last night, Friday night. On the Danny Masterson trial, on um, on uh, prosecuting crimes in cults, I called it, and it was really my response, my sort of soapbox uh, about the uh, interview that I got last week with the jury foreman from the Danny Masterson trial. So during that interview, I did not, you know, respond or give him a a, a lot of crap or or uh, editorialize on his views or anything, or attempt to debate him. That wasn't necessary. And wasn't uh, appropriate for what we were trying to do, Tony and I, in doing that interview. But I had some things to say. And I have some very strong opinions about this trial and its outcome and the mistrial and why that happened. And we talked about that. So if you're interested in my take on it, and I was following it daily, I' you know I've been been in touch with Tony, been in touch with other people who were in the courtroom who had things to say about it and uh, kind of put all that together and put it out there for you guys. So also just so y'all know, we do a Friday live show right here, and we do, it's a call-in show. Um, And it's actually the reason I got this fancy equipment is so I could do that show. (laughs) So my wife and I have been doing that for a couple of years, critical conversations every Friday night at six o'clock Denver time right here. So enough plugs, let's get to your questions. Jonas Vinther. If Hubbard said and believed that exposure to OT3 was harmful or even deadly to people, how on earth could the man justify writing Revolt in the Stars, which is obviously the subject of that screenplay? Did he seriously not consider that the Scientologists who paid thousands of dollars to reach OT3 would be extremely surprised, angry, and confused that he was now selling this pitch to Hollywood? What if the film blew up like Star Trek or Star Wars and the Wall of Fire was now something everyone knew about? All right, I love clearing up these confusions about OT level three and the public's understanding of them because it's nuanced. You gotta kinda you're gonna have to understand that there's a there's a plus and a minus here. It's not all just this sort of simple idea of, oh, you've read about Xenu, you've heard about Xenu, now you're dead. It does it doesn't work like that. And so, well, how does it work? Well, here's the thing: Hubbard was playing a little, a little mind game with everyone uh, in regards to this idea of revolt in the stars or revolting in the stars, if you will. It's an awful, awful story. Um, and it's really not even a screenplay. It's more of a, of a novella or a short story, really. Um, but it could be turned into a screenplay easily enough. But really, I think it's more of what, what they might call a treatment or a story version of, of this concept of, of um, a, a modern Earth, a society and discovering some thing under the water that tells them the whole story about their hi- about the history of things here on earth and how this guy Xenu uh, was involved in a um, space you know opera very larger than life story of mass genocide you know interstellar genocide and and ruination, and and the and the revolt in the Star Story uh, is Zenu's story, and the story of um, the Galactic uh, Confederation or Marquebian Confederation, and it's all and, and its downfall. Um, so the characters are simple, Simon, stupid. They are kindergarten level complexity. I mean, it's a really badly written tale. But what Hubbard, when I said Hubbard was playing mind games with everybody, what I meant is that Hubbard considered and said that the material in our distant past is something everybody on earth, all, the, all the, the, the people here, all the spiritual beings here, we all have it in common. We've all been through those incidents, and because we've all been through those incidents, we all have and share common restimulators, things that will that will remind us forcibly or maybe, sub, you know, very, very subconsciously, very subconsciously uh, of these past episodes of, of intense trauma and pain and unconsciousness. And the Xenu story and the whole genocide of that is very definitely a mass incident of massive pain and unconsciousness. So we all share that, and therefore there are pictures, words, ideas that can be fed to people that will restimulate, that will that will make a person feel certain ways or turn back on perceptions or feelings or pains, and emotions from those earlier incidents. And and, and Hubbard believed that this could be used. This, this, is, this was what auditing is all about, is going in and, and rehashing it and taking it apart and blowing all of those pains and, and unconsciousnesses and, and emotions and all the negative stuff connected with all of that. But Hubbard also decided it, that this could be used for marketing and that you could subtly re-stimulate people with certain imagery and certain pictures, certain ideas, and they would be somehow hypnotically drawn to the material because it would be, oh, something's important about this, some, some sort of subliminal sort of thing. And Hubbard attempted to, you know, I have this, this... And the whole thing is based on a fantasy. It's all Hubbard's fever dream. But he thought this stuff was so powerful that it could be used in Scientology on the covers of their books to bring people in, to entice them in, this is why a volcano is on the cover of Dianetics because volcanoes feature so prominently in the OT3 narrative. Uh, this is why there are guys in white helmets and outfits, uh, white, white uh, uniforms on some of the other books or why there's, um, you know, the caveman eating the thing in the, on the History of Man book. These were all meant to be re-stimulative and to to subconsciously or subliminally draw people in. Subliminal probably isn't the right word, but subconscious re-stimulation. So so that's part of Hubbard's thinking. You have to understand all of that. And Jeff Hawkins talks about this at length in an interview I did with him years ago, which you guys can look up, um, where he talked about how this was part of Scientology's marketing strategy. Uh, according, you know, as directed by L. Ron Hubbard. So um, understanding that in 1977, when Star Wars came out, L. Ron Hubbard looked at the success of that movie and went, well, you know, obviously this movie is successful because it's restimulating people's whole track memories, the memories from way back when. That's called the whole track in Scientology, memories earlier than this lifetime. Um, and so it's a raging success. People love Star Wars, right? Because it's restimulating the hell out of them. And because of course it's a good story. Well, L. Ron Hubbard thought he could do one better. And he thought, well, if this was so successful, we should, get, we should ride this magic carpet ride, make a lot of money, get a lot of, uh, get a very popular product out there and get a lot of name recognition for Hubbard. And re stimulate these people so that they will, you know, pursue a Scientology uh, education or, or uh, you know, endeavor. So, Revolt in the Stars was his was his uh, sort of brainchild for that, and and he wrote it, and they tried very, very hard to get the movie made. Now, that's the sort of summary backstory for this for Revolt in the Stars, and Hubbard never imagined. That it was going to kill people because he left out of the story all the important bits as far as Scientology is concerned. And I've tried to get this across to people. And let me let me do so again. There are there's the sci-fi story of OT3. Planets, spaceships, DC tens, uh, you know, glycol, alcohol, injections, and putting people to sleep and Xenu uh, and this whole, you know, sort of genocidal story and the, and the, um, the good guys, the loyal officers who saved the day and, and didn't really save the day, but at least uh, toppled Xenu within a few years of this whole thing going down. And, um, and some of them, Hubbard claims some of these loyal officers, you know, surviving all the way to now and coming back as Sea Org members. Right, with the motto of the Sea Org is "We come back." <laughs> yeah, and he meant it like that. It's a very open, open context statement, but um, but that is the motto of the Sea Org. So, so Hubbard decided that the sci-fi elements and the narrative story of the OT three incident could safely be told, and it would be only mildly restimulative to people because what they don't get in that story, is any hint or inference about body thetans. And it's the body thetans that are the important part of the Xenu OT3 story. Xenu isn't the important part. No one in Scientology really cares that much about it. What they care about is the effects, the consequences of that incident. And that's where the body thetans come in. And Hubbard doesn't go anywhere near the fact of body thetans, the treatment or methodology of body thetans, or the resolution of body thetans and how they're going to be gone. None of that and none of the technique in, of how to get rid of the body thetans, none of that is in Revolt in the Stars. And that's the part that's going to kill you. I actually looked it up. And decided to pull up Hubbard's actual handwritten notes on this. And what he said is, um, when through with his crime, loyal officers to the people captured him. He's talking here about Xenu. Captured him after six years of battle and put him in an electronic mountain trap where he still is. They are gone. The place, Confederation, has since been a desert the length and brutality of it all was such that this confederation never recovered the implant is calculated to kill by pneumonia etc anyone who attempts to solve it this liability has been dispensed with by my tech development one can free wheel through the implant and die unless it is approached as precisely outlined the free wheel quote unquote auto-running, on and on, lasts too long, denies sleep, etc., and one dies. So be careful to do only incidents one and two as given, and not plow around and fail to complete one thetan at a time. So, um, sort of semi-translating this here, what I, the point I'm trying to make in reading Hubbard directly on this exact point, is he doesn't say knowledge of this incident is what kills you, it's trying to solve the implant, which is auditing. You have to address the incident and address the body thetans telepathically one by one by one and exorcise them, kick them out, get them gone from you um, because they're your body. They're the thing that makes up your perception of your body. And you, and you got to get rid of these body thetans for you as an individual little spirit to be free because they're all glommed onto you. Uh, kind of like you imagine a beekeeper with a bunch of bees all over him. You know what I mean? It's like, got to get those things plucked off one at a time, and that's the that's the important part about what is revealed to Scientologists. They, you know, again, they don't they don't care about the whole genocide and you know That's all. That stuff all happened seventy six million years ago. Who cares? It's what does this have to do with me? Oh, I got all these body thetans I got to deal with. Ugh! And if you don't address these things properly and try to just run back, see, Scientologists, talk. he talks here about running this. That means that that you're actually applying a Scientology technique or process to that incident to recall it, go through it, remember it. But there's more to OT3 than just remembering or recalling or reliving the implant. It's addressing the body thetans and getting them off. That's the hard part, and that's the part that takes a while, and that's the part that eventually goes to OT4, 5, 7. All of those levels address body fatens, and OT7 takes years to get through. So 3 is your introduction to all of this. It's like, oh, this is what the bridge is going to be about now, and that's what you start doing. And it's the freewheeling through the implant that will kill you, this freewheel, this auto-running, this like, oh, let me contemplate this, think about this, dive into it, try to take it apart, try to disassemble the implant on my own without paying attention to what Hubbard said to do. If I do that, that's what's going to kill me because I'll never sleep, I'll get, I'll get hopelessly re-stimulated, over-restimulated, and my body won't be able to cope with it. And I'll kill myself, I'll, I'll just die, my body will just wear itself out. That's how people die because of OT3. So, you know, you or I could theoretically listen to, hear about this whole incident and go, oh, wow, well, let me see if I can take that seriously enough to actually start thinking deeply about it and try to audit it with Scientology or Dianetics processes and start diving into it as though it's real, as though it's real memory and that's happened to me and I'm going to go through it and relive it. That's where... excuse me, that's where the danger would come from. Unless, of course, just talking about it like this is enough to kill me. We'll see. Anyway, that's the deal with that. I hope that my explanation here was clear or clear enough to be understood that it's not the story in Revolt in the Stars that's going to get you. It's the actual running of the incident. And I I hope that breakdown helps clarify that uh, sort of once and for all. Steve Wood, I know a Scientologist who is completely anti-perfume and cologne, but he was not like this before becoming a Scientologist, which which led me to write to you about this topic. I seem to remember, and it may have been on your show, that Hubbard had some totally strange ideas about perfumes and colognes and was absolutely against them. Can you shed some light on this very strange topic? Hey, Steve. Yeah, of course I can. Um, in fact, I decided that um, rather than talk about it out of my own uh, memory, as I've done before, I would just go straight to the L. Ron Hubbard on this. Um, first, a little background. This was mainly just for Sea Org members. This was originally issued, this, what I'm going to read to you, was originally issued as a flag order. Uh, it, was a, it was a directive from Hubbard that was just for Sea Org members about scented products. And then it was converted over into a a bulletin so that all Scientologists would have access to it. Um, And apparently it was originally written back in 1984. So this was actually end-of-life writing for Hubbard, and this was straight from Hubbard. Um, No reason to believe that this came from anybody else. And so here are a couple of quotes from this issue. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's two pages long. But here are some things that Hubbard had to say about it. And he relates it back to psychiatry because he's talking about marketing and advertisers. And and, uh, Hubbard was absolutely, uh, you know, hated psychiatry in any way, shape or form, not just psychiatric practice in hospitals or in medicine, but any influence of psychiatry or psychology such as On Madison Avenue with advertisers and he was always talking about how it's psych influenced and how that's one of the reasons why the planet's going downhill and he's talking here about the fact that um, that smell comes from particles it's not a gas it's a it's it's very 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 tiny particles that your uh, nose is picking up so he says So when psych-influenced marketing, and he's referring here to the fact that you can get a magazine uh, that has perfume in it, Uh, you can go to a store and there's perfume in the air, even going and getting your clothes dry clean, they put some perfume in it, like it's everywhere. Hubbard is like, ah, the world's going crazy with this stuff. And he says, so when psych-influenced marketing advisors began to spread junk around in the atmosphere one soon gets a fully contaminated planet. Odor particles do not just evaporate. They have to blow away and settle somewhere or get washed down by rain and get into the water systems and so forth. One of the worst things about these fragrances is that they hide other smells, and a person who is aware seriously objects to having all natural odors of things masked. Uh, it is part of one's identification process of objects and areas. In short, it's annoying. Um, And he's he's not completely off base about that, and that's how he connects with his audience, right? Um, But he says here that the danger of fragrances of that nature being spread all over the place is that they can hide toxic or even lethal substances in areas. And the Sykes on the track, okay, this is in the past, the Sykes who have been around for a long time and originally came from the planet Farsec. Let's, let's remember, this is L. Ron Hubbard talking. And the Sykes on the track used such scents for exactly that purpose. So this fragrance thing is one of the tricks of the trade of Sykes. Let's uh, so here. He goes on and talks about how, did you ever notice that after you had been around one of those odors for a while, you ceased to smell it? Well, that's because perfume and fragrances are basically paralytics of the olfactory nerves. That's a lie. That is completely not true. But Hubbard gets away with saying it, right? Because he connects the dots to, oh, yeah, I stopped smelling that perfume smell. Why is that? Well, if you don't know otherwise, you could be fooled by this. Hubbard goes on to say, they are, if you please, a sort of tranquilizer, they drastically cut down awareness, and when one is fairly alert in his senses shop, it is like being gassed with nitrous oxide or something. So that's why these people don't notice the smells and things and why they put up with these horrible stinks and detergents and other products. You may think, he says, you may think I am uh, being a bit extreme on this subject, but it's just that I can hear better and see better and smell better, and apparently I detest a monotone sensory perception continuously hammered at me. When I walk in the park, I want to smell the flowers, not some soap company's stinking counterfeit perfume. And he then goes on to talk about allergies to these things and such like that. So that's, I thought you might appreciate it sort of straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, on this, Steve. Um, Because that's why Scientologists get on with this is Hubbard spins, uh, you know, that the annoying factor of it, and it's true, it can be annoying. (laughs) um, But then he connects it with something that's completely not true. The reason that you stop smelling things has nothing to do with being a paralytic. It has to do with the fact that it's it's called familiarization. Your brain stops telling you about things that are present in the environment that you are that are there constantly. You don't have to be you don't have to keep hearing about or smelling or tasting or seeing them uh, if your brain is is you know because it's not a new pre- thing that it has to that it has to um, predict newly and 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 decide on and figure out right. The brain's trying to constantly operate on a predictive mechanism of what's new and different and novel in the environment. That's what it's always looking for. And so when something becomes um, habituated or normal in your environment, you stop paying attention to it because it's not that your body is not smelling or tasting or sensing it anymore. It's that your brain is not bothering you with that detail anymore. That's what I can That's you know, my simple Simon explanation for what's going on with the brain there and why it is that you don't get that perfume smell. I just thought I'd throw that out there since I said what Hubbard was saying was a lie. Well, let me, let me tell you uh, the truth as, as I understand it. So I'm sure we'll get comments on this, uh, and I think it'll be kind of interesting to hear what other people have to say about this. But there's my answer for you, Steve. R.R. R. Smith, I understand that auditing changes your memory. How and how much would auditing change your memory? Would Masterson have a truer memory of the events than the Jane Doe's that had had auditing? I'm really out of date on how hypnotism works, but it used to be that you could not testify in court if you had used hypnotism to remember something. Also, there are times when you have sounded like I can't trust any of my own childhood memories. All right, R.R., thank you for this. I actually interviewed a neuroscientist uh, on the topic of memory because I'm not a memory expert when it comes to the neuroscience of it, and I wanted somebody who was. And so we had interesting discussions about the nature of memory, and you can find those a few years ago in my Sensibly Speaking podcasts. Um, Jonas Kaplan, Dr. Jonas Kaplan, was the neuroscientist that I interviewed. And we had some great talks about all of this, and it really sort of helped inform my understanding of the malleability, the plasticity of memory, the fact that memory is something you you put back together each time you go back to it from a, a, a different, col- a disparate collection of things in your mind. It's not a matter of uh, of a slate of pictures, or that your mind is remembering things like a film strip. It doesn't work like that. It's working by recombining things, and this is why we have memory holes and memory problems. Is because sometimes those memories just go and they are gone and they cannot be reconstructed. Or there's damage to the brain that can happen. There's other kinds of uh, neurochemical damage that can happen that can mess with your ability to reconstitute memories. Drugs and um, drug residuals can uh, mess with the neural structure of your brain and cause you to have memory issues. So there's a lot of different things, uh, and of course we get to you know real patholo- pathology with memory when you have things like Alzheimer's where the neurons are just breaking down uh, physically, and so there's not going to be those connections possible anymore, or at least not that way. And yet despite all of this, the brain has this amazing plasticity, this ability to reform and reconnect and have other... Parts of it pick up the slack, pick up the pace, pick up pieces here and there. If this part breaks down, this part can take over. It's really interesting stuff. So so there isn't a lot of, you know, I, I don't feel that I'm on like concrete ground when I describe or talk about how memory works. It's still the subject of intense study and something that we are still figuring things out on. But what I can talk about is... How um, trauma and coercive control and interpretation of events has everything to do with how you remember things too, right? How we see things now, how we saw things in the past, colors our perceptions. Something can be hostile in one context and friendly in another, and that's going to affect our emotional reactions, and that's going to affect our memory of the situation because of the different brain modes that can you can go into. If you're terrified, afraid, think you're in danger, you're going into fight-or-flight mode. Your memories and the things that are going to be important about that incident are probably going to be a little bit different than falling in love and the cozy, fun, euphoric feeling of that where, you know, the world is your oyster, everything is beautiful, the sun is shining, the clouds are parting. You know, you've never felt better about everybody and everything. Well, the world isn't any different. You are. And your perception of the world is different because of how you are approaching the world. And therefore, your memories of those times in your life are going to be colored by that and affected by it, right? Right. So um, so then you say, okay, well, does auditing change memory? You bet it does because it spins all kinds of new interpretations on events in your past. You'll look at or run through an engram that you might have had when you were five, when you got hit over the head by something, and you might develop, like a Polaroid picture, memories because you're being demanded to, and you're being told— that all those memories are there for you to access. Well, maybe that's true and maybe it's not. But as a Scientologist or somebody who's getting dianetics auditing, this is what you're told. And you're told with no un, you know, with with direct certainty, those memories are there. And you're gonna recall them and we're gonna run through them and you're gonna relive them. And that's how we're going to release the trauma and the and the engram. Is you're gonna, is you're gonna move to the beginning of the incident and tell me when you're there. Okay, and then you're going to move through the incident, and then you're going to tell me what happened, right? And you're going to describe it as though you're living that moment all over again. And that's the dianetic process, and you, rep- and you go back over and over and over that incident. So you are told, remember the incident, and there is no quarter given if you're like, well, I can't remember it. I don't have any certainty on it. keep going, keep going. Keep going. And you're going to develop a memory, and whether that memory that you develop is real or not is anybody's guess. That's the thing about this that's so crazy and tricky, right, is memory is malleable. Memory and imagination are indistinguishable from one another in our mind's eye. There are no tags, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no hash mark on, an, on something you imagined versus something you're remembering, We use the same brain mechanisms to relive things in our imagination to create and imagine a future with our memory to create and imagine a past. And yet these things can combine and collide. And that is why this is tricky stuff and why our memories are something that it's really, you know, it's it's fine that we have memories. It's clearly a function of our brain to remember things. And especially remember traumatic things. So it's not wholly unreliable, but it's really best served. We are best served with memory if we have some kind of physical representations or objects or records or or indications that are that are more reliable. I guess you could say, right? Uh, to connect those memories too. So then you know, because I think all of us have had the experience of. You know, oh, I remember this thing. And you've been telling people for years when I was seven years old, blah, blah, blah happened to me. Or when I was nine, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody pulls out a scrapbook one day, or your mother happens to be in the room one day. And it's like, that wasn't when you were nine. That was when you were 11. Or that was, or here's a, you know, here's this picture. And clearly it shows this thing happening. But look, you were six. You weren't nine. That was three years earlier, right? I mean, we've all had that rude awakening that, oh my God, I, I wow, I've been remembering this totally wrong. I've gone back and, you know, we you talk about how when you go back and look at, it shows that you watched when you were a kid and it ruins your ruins your childhood, right? Because what does it do? It corrects your memories. You've been feeding yourself a story for years that you absolutely believed was true. And you go back and see, Oh, it actually wasn't that. I remembered it wrong, but I was remembering it wrong over and over and over again and reinforcing the wrong memory. And now your childhood's ruined. You know, that kind of thing. And this has and that of course encapsulates a lot of what I've been talking about here because our childhood also includes, you know, emotional content and feelings and all of that, not just the exact incident as it happened. Anyway, so you I think you guys get what I'm talking about here. So as far as auditing, auditing changes memory because it installs false memories. It can install imagination as memory. And this is where um, John Atack's description of hypnotism as guided imagination becomes really useful. Um, because that is what auditing is, is you are guiding a person's imagination, when it, especially when it comes to, you know, incidents that happened 76 trillion years ago. But we don't even have to go that far to invent memories. We have lots of examples in and out of Scientology of false memory syndrome where people are made or coerced or coaxed into remembering things that never happened or didn't happen the way they thought they happened or remembered them happening. And auditing is just another mechanism or way of coercing or coaxing a person into that kind of Of headspace, and they can become quite sure, quite certain that those things that they're imagining are true, are literally true. I sure did. I I had all kinds of things I remembered when I was in Scientology auditing that that I know now has absolutely no basis in fact at all. Um, You know, so as far as comparing Masterson and Jane and the Jane Does because of their auditing, that is no index to use of any kind. And Masterson, by the way, has had plenty of auditing himself including security checking, uh, without any question. I mean, it's 100% certain that the Church of Scientology has uh, very precise records out of Danny Masterson's mouth of what happened and out of the Jane Doe's of what happened from the differing perspectives. Um, you know, which one is more accurate? It's anybody's guess. But auditing is not going to be a, a, a measure of accuracy for anybody's memory one way or the other. Uh, And that's what I can say about all that. Catherine Salon. I heard today of the passing of Kirstie Alley. I was surprised that she was only 71, which is considered pretty young nowadays in my opinion, and that she died of cancer. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Kirstie OT-8? Why are so many established Scientologists dying of cancer? Is it something to do with their training or perhaps the underlying stress of being part of that cult? I'd love to hear your opinion on this matter. All right, Catherine, thank you for this question. I have a few points on this, uh, and I'll go down them real quick. First off, let me say that I was actually sorry to hear about her passing. Um, Kirstie Alley is somebody that I remember fondly, even if her end-of-lifetime was, you know, becoming a sort of Twitter hag. On social media where she got really nasty with people from time to time, especially critics of Scientology, that's, you know, that's not the part of her that I choose to remember or, or think about because she was, uh, you know, in the best Star Trek movie ever, Wrath of Khan, and she was wonderfully funny in a number of things, Cheers and even those awful Look Who's Talking movies. Hell, I enjoyed them when they came out, and he, and you guys are liars if you say you didn't either. And uh, we got a lot of laughs, and she was very entertaining. and she provided a lot of uh, a lot of funny comedy and entertainment to a lot of people over years. and she and she had a good heart and she wanted to help. And a lot of her nastiness came out of the bitterness of not realizing those goals. And she went down the wrong path of Scientology. And really, that's just kind of a bummer that she did, but she had a decent life anyway. and And uh, that's what I can say about her in terms of, uh, you know, obituary comments. But as far as your questions go, there's a few things. One, Scientologists, especially OTs, neglect their own medical care. Um, They tend to think because of their status as Scientologists and as OTs and as trained Scientologists that they know more and better than doctors do and modern science does. And they're reinforced in this belief by the continuing droning on of L. Ron Hubbard's voice in his lectures telling them exactly that, that medicine and science and the medicos out there don't really know much about what they're doing. They're good enough for patching up a broken bone or healing a cut in the arm, but otherwise they're kind of useless and when it comes to major diseases like cancer, leukemia, bad eyesight, etc., conditions or disorders, Scientology is really what you want to solve things with. In fact, there's even an issue in Scientology called solve it with Scientology, where he says that you need to use auditing techniques to deal with um, problems people have, that that's really the only, you know, that that addressing the spiritual problems is the only way to address or affect. A permanent change in the situation, because if you don't address the person spiritually, they're just going to keep creating these chronic illnesses and problems and diseases for themselves. Because all of these have a psychosomatic uh, origin story. They're all they're all coming from this the the spirit re- reflecting itself or 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 uh, impinging itself on the body and creating these conditions. Okay um so they is and that's why scientologists believe that they are at cause they are the ones who are in the driver's seat as far as the condition of the body goes and they need to address the spiritual factors and that's what will cure the body not go see a doctor um now at the end of this uh you know kirstie alley did go see a doctor and she did i believe you know pretty quickly after the diagnosis if I heard properly, I didn't dive into all the details of the story, but what I heard was that she had gotten some really top flight care, but it had come on very quickly and sort of overwhelmed her body and she, and she died off. Um, so you don't have, generally speaking with Scientologists, a regular course of physical therapy or treatment or examination. You know, they're not keen on going and getting their yearly physicals and keeping up on their tests and monitoring their labs and stuff like that. They don't do that, right? Most Scientologists I know eschewed and even, you know, sort of ridiculed that kind of thing because I'm not PTS. And that's the last thing on this I was going to bring up, which is this business of being PTS, a potential trouble source, meaning that they are connected with a suppressive person. And this is why you see Scientologists run and cower and and hide from people they think of as SPs or suppressive people People like me, people who criticize Scientology, we're criminals, we're antisocial personalities, we're psychotic as far as Scientologists are concerned, and they avoid us like the plague because they don't want to be connected to us because if they become tainted or corrupted by us and our influence, they become PTS, potential trouble sources. That's the condition. That's how Hubbard kept people away from listening or hearing or talking to People like me or Leah or Mike or Tony or Karen or Aaron or any of us, why do Scientologists avoid us like the plague? Because they think we're going to give them the plague. That because if they're influenced by us or, or corrupted by us, then they could become sick and die. Not that I'm fatal to them. They don't necessarily, that that would be an ultimate sort of consequence of it, but it's a consequence. It's there. It's real. The threat is real. And as far as Scientologists are concerned, okay? So anyway, so this is the, uh, this is uh, a factor as to why they uh, do or don't get medical care and proper medical treatment is all of these things uh, kind of wrapped up. So hope that uh, clarifies and answers the question there, Catherine. Buberola. So when you're in the Scientology bubble, you see Hubbard as source which takes on a monumental stature. It's as if he's the grand architect of culture, the most influential person ever, and one can start to think that he was behind stuff he wasn't. It can seem that a lot of other movements and media products and games, even academic subjects, were created as derivatives and offshoots from his groundbreaking research. Scientologists can start to even see proof of his genius in new inventions and discoveries, inwardly crediting Ron. It seems this is a point of cult think that is common, but not necessarily mentioned that often. The subtle way that psychological totalism can make one nutty, likely even pathologically so. What are some things you used to think Ron influenced or made that he wasn't credited for? Did you ever have this thinking pattern? All right, interesting question and not necessarily as common as I think you might imagine it to be from the way you put your question there, but it is definitely a phenomenon that happens and I and I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's interesting. The first thing that came to mind for me was actually this subject of organic sounds in music and connecting those electronically with a synthesizer and Hubbard wrote about this in the late 70s and and decided to score one of his technical training films using natural sounds of crickets and owls hooting and and wind blowing and things like that and programming this into a synthesizer, which was fairly new tech at the time. And Hubbard thought that this was going to be a really big thing, and I guess it kind of is, um, but it's not something Hubbard invented. And Hubbard said in writing about this, that he didn't follow trends; he was a setter of trends. He was a trendsetter, and this was something he was going to, you know, contribute to the music world, and it was going to be revolutionary, and he was going to set trends with this. Well, I never saw any trends being set by Hubbard of any kind, but it, but that phrase kind of stuck in my mind. I was always like, really, that's ha- that's what he that's that's interesting, and I didn't really observe trends in society being set by Scientology, but I did believe. That because of our existence as a group and because of the influence that we had had as a group on world affairs or on the theta and theta ratio and all that kind of stuff, that our our existence had prevented the end of the world. And that that Hubbard had written about how the oil crisis or trade or how various other factors were uh, imploding our planet and our society and the energy crisis and all that. This is all back from the 1960s and 70s, overpopulation. Uh, Hubbard claimed that this was actually a very underpopulated world, but, you know, the technology on it was so primitive that we weren't dealing with our resources well. We were poisoning the sky and all that kind of stuff. And um, anyway, he kind of tried to glom on to trends that were going on and and hype Scientology as a solution to these problems and it had me believing when I was a Scientologist that we were, our our mere existence was preventing the collapse of society and the planet uh, because of what we were doing, okay, in some nebulous kind of fashion that I never would have been able to explain in terms of where the rubber meets the road. I couldn't have told you anything we were actually doing. It was more this nebulosity in my mind, right? That that we were just this amazing group doing amazing things. So that's why, while I acknowledge that the question asks about something that I think does happen, it didn't really happen to me that way. But I did see other people credit Hubbard for all kinds of things going on in society. And maybe the biggest one, the biggest influence that we thought was a direct result of Scientology, and if Scientology wasn't around, this wouldn't have happened. Was the fall of the Berlin Wall that was that was absolutely in our world credited to Scientology and the release of OT8? And that was uh, that was cause effect, right? We release OT8, OT8 start auditing, the Berlin Wall comes down, and the end of the Cold War. <gasps> what, right? And that was, uh, that was something we, we all believed in very hard. So I don't know, you know, maybe not as complete an answer as you were looking for, but that's what I've, that's what I've got for you. Flash! Ah! All right, let's do some flash answers. Terry, Scientology has the cross-like symbol on the top of the facility, but they also have the two triangles with the S through them. Is there a special meaning to that symbol? Hey, thanks for asking. Quite simply, the S stands for Scientology, and the top triangle is uh, symbolic for the KRC triangle, knowledge, responsibility, and control. And the bottom triangle is the ARC triangle, affinity, reality, and communication. And the ARC triangle is supposed to be the component parts of understanding. So if you have ARC for something in an ultimate sense, you will understand it in an ultimate sense. The KRC triangle is something Hubbard used more for executives or managerial type people, and it was about controlling people and, under, and and again, taking responsibility for things. It's knowledge, responsibility, and control. And they, these factors are interrelated, so the more knowledge you have of something, the more responsibility you can take for it, the more control you can have over it, you know, that kind of uh, relationship So those two triangles are pretty important in Scientology, and that's why they are part of the logo of Scientology. Jonathan Perry. Hubbard was very vague about things, but I'm curious if he ever described what some of the invader force aliens looked like. Did he just leave it up to your own imagination, or did he ever mention that in lectures or the OT levels? I would assume there would have been many species in his reality. Okay, Jonathan, thank you for this. Um, uh, What I remember were very vague descriptions of the invader forces. And these are invader forces are basically other species or other races of beings out there in the stars who have advanced along technologically and have started reaching out and invading other areas of the universe. And Hubbard said that this has been going on for trillions and trillions of years. And there's, you know, there's like five or six main invader forces out there that he sort of uh, described or talked about, but it was always in the vaguest of ways. Uh, he referred to them as electronics people, for example, which meaning they had developed a high level of of technology and electronics, and they could use electronics to uh, trap or or imprison uh, spiritual beings. And I always relate that back to Ghostbusters. If you want to know what it, what does that look like, it looks like Ghostbusters. You know, you got Electronics that nobody here on Earth has, in order to do a thing, which is capture a spiritual entity and put it in a box. How do you do that with special electronics? So, uh, so that's why I thought Ghostbusters was such a great uh, example or analogy for that. As far as what they appeared or looked like, again, vague descriptions. Great big hands, uh, claws for hands. Uh, you know, sort of ugly or or hideous to behold, or you know, insectoid or something. I mean, you get that would be about as far as Hubbard would go in describing these things. And, and he described different invader forces in different ways. Again, I don't remember all the different things he said, but it was again very vague, broad sort of descriptions of them, nothing super specific. Ryan Hewitt At some point while traveling Scientology's Bridge to Total Freedom, a person has full cause over the messed universe. Do Scientologists think these people can move the e-meter needle? How do they square these abilities with the infallibility of the e-meter? Theoretically speaking, yes, an OT could move an e-meter needle around, but that they, they really only have the ability, I think Hubbard actually addressed this in the lecture once, is, you know, you can hit the you can hit the 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 needle on the dial with a beam, with an electronic beam but it's just going to knock it around on the dial. It doesn't look like an organic needle reaction. And when you're trained to use knee meter, you can tell very quickly the difference between a person squeezing the cans or rubbing their feet on the ground or doing different body things uh, in order to move the needle around. It has a distinctly different character or reaction or response than when a person's just sitting there holding the cans and the needle responds to the resistance to the electronic flow over their body, kind of two different animals. And a person, as a, a Hubbard said, or you can imagine that a thetan bopping a needle around um, with, with, you know, tractor beams or presser beams or something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look unnatural. So even if they were trying to fool the auditor by, you know, uh, hitting the, the, the needle, it wouldn't work. And they wouldn't, but, but the fact of the matter is they're not in a headspace where that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get gains and results with Scientology and they need the meter to work. And so they're not going to mess with it in an effort to try to mess with their auditing or anything. I mean, they're, they're, they're paying for that time. So anyway, that's, uh, there you go. All right. So that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in and watching. And, and I hope you guys are having a great holiday season And I hope you continue to have one. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.